I believe that life, you know, will find a way to deal with those things or it won't. I mean, I, there, there's always this, this space of it won't because Venus was once Earth-like, they think, you know, like there is the possibility that it could just go grossly wrong. But I do believe in the hope of life in reclaiming the spaces that we've made. That was Alicia Escott. And this is part three of a four-part series curated by the research collective Erratics, a curatorial group that creates art that explores geologic phenomena and the effects of human impact on the environment. In this episode, Hannah Perrine Mode of Erratics hosts a conversation about futurism and hope. It draws from personal relationships to deep time and geologic forces from past and present, and explores the methods with which artists are questioning, exploring, and reimagining what our collective future or futures will look like and feel like. Hannah is joined by artists Sophia Cordova, Alicia Escott, and Nicholas B. Jacobson. Welcome to Chattermarks, a podcast of the Anchorage Museum, dedicated to exploring Alaska's identity through the creative and critical thinking of ideas, past, present, and future. If you could share um, your name, your pronouns, uh, your location, any kind of cultural identifiers that feel important to you, um, and any other kind of information that might feel important to your work or to who you are, um, just as kind of like a getting to know you. Um, so I can start um, just as to get us going. My name's Hannah. Um, I'm a woman identifying artist and I use she, her pronouns. Um, I'm currently living on Anishinaabe land, um, which is currently known as Central Michigan. And I'm a third of the Research Collective Erratics um, with Tyler Ray and Nina Elder. Uh, and as an artist, I'm exploring geologic empathy at the intersection of abstract art and environmental science. Um, okay, uh, Nicholas, would you like to go next? Yeah. I'm Nicholas. Um, I'm a non-binary research artist. I use they, them pronouns. I am a seventh or eighth generation Utah Mormon. I am no longer, you know, I don't practice Mormonism. I left some time ago, but that's an important part of my history. Um, and the work I do in art uh, focuses around um, working to unsettle settler coloniality and being a witness to whiteness and working to um, mend the human nature divide that's dominant in our you know dominant culture and I'm currently living in uh, so-called Albuquerque New Mexico which is on uh, Tiwa land and I was raised in the southwest corner of so-called Utah on uh, Nuwu land thank you Sofia. My name is Sofia Cordova. I use she, her, they, them pronouns, and I am an Afro-Indigenous person from the Caribbean, Puerto Rico specifically, Borican, and I am talking to you from Oakland, California, 
um, former Olone land, um, actually like a skip away from the Shell Mount. And my work, uh, always hard to narrow down this, the, the, the many universes, but um, I primarily work in performance, music, and video. These things tend to live in installations. And um, very generally speaking, my work is situated in the future that has ranged from 1500 years in the future to more recently I'm working within 10 years in the future. And uh, the reason I work with uh, speculative scenarios in science fiction is, to put it simply, um, to imagine life on the other side of complete rupture for those of us who find ourselves in bodies that are currently oppressed by the various systems of late capitalism and its technologies. Hi, my name's Alicia Escott, and uh, my pronouns are she, her, they, them. And um, I am recording this here in San Francisco um, on Ohlone land also inside of a Victorian built house um, constructed out of Douglas fir and redwood. And um, that's recently played into my work a fair amount. I am, I am a white woman. And um, however, my experience of that, I, I grew up with um, parents who were separated very early on in my life, and they came from very different backgrounds. Um, and so my father is um, Russian Jew, and my mother comes from a Protestant background, coming eventually from actually from the Mayflower, um, which is something I've been unpacking in my work a little bit recently. And um, I am an interdisciplinary artist um, who has been dealing with environmental and social justice in my work uh, for many, many years, um, working across um, a spectrum of ways of working. I have a rigorous studio practice. I also work collaboratively and collectively. And really what it is to live in this moment and to live amidst rapid climate change and the climate crisis and to get every day and to recognize those things and at the same time have deadlines and so what it is to live amid the climate crisis amid the sixth extinction event and to be aware of those things and um, still go about one's day-to-day -day. Um, realities and responsibilities is something that's kind of endlessly fascinating to me um, and the sort of cognitive dissonance that it requires of all of us. Um, I am also, I think Nicholas alluded to this as well, a lot of my work is undoing the construct of nature as, as something at all, you know, something that's separated from us and um, our world. Thank you. Um, so I'd like to just kind of dive in a little bit more into each of your work. Um, so I'm curious to hear kind of what ideas, questions, or curiosities that might be orbiting around your practice right now. So for example, you know, what kind of questions are you asking? What are you most curious about right now? Or what kinds of thoughts and ideas are you holding close at this moment? I recently finished grad school, like uh, graduated 
directly into the pandemic. And so everything kind of shifted at that point. Um, so I guess currently what I've been focusing on is I've, so my thesis project was an investigation into my personal and ancestral history of settler coloniality um, since Mormons were so, I don't know, central to the colonization of the West. And yet uh, I rarely hear them being noted for, you know, what they have done out here. and. I've noticed that similarly through, uh, as we look at environmental issues, how often that Christianity is kind of central to the problematic ideologies that have led us to this point. And a lot of the readings that I've read, it's kind of, you know, it, it gets mentioned in the introduction, but it rarely seems to like sort of take the space that I think it has taken in creating the cultures that you know, lead to the biological annihilation crisis and the climate crisis. So I made a whole show about, you know, whiteness and Mormonism and settler coloniality and showed it here in Albuquerque where there's not as much of a predominant Mormon population. So I've been trying to figure out how to get this work home to Utah, um, but in a pandemic where we don't go places. So I started an Instagram as a collaboration with a fellow ex-Mormon who has, you know, never really thought about that history. And so I guess some of my questions are like how, how best to sort of do this work, especially when um, being embodied is so important for these kinds of change, at least in, in, in my work that I've seen, especially with white people, with the like uh, Euro US Americans, um, that being embodied is a really important part into tapping into these changes and being able to sit with the, you know, really unpleasant things that are part of our history, which to me is an essential step before we can sort of do that, you know, heal and reconnect with our bodies and nature. We also have to be able to, I guess, uh, viscerally understand what our presence on this land really means. And so I've been thinking about that as sort of how how to get this information to those people in ways where it will be something that can be digested rather than something that sort of pushes them away because there is such a sort of toxic positivity that's predominant in Utah culture and Mormon culture. While my work is imbued with my own personal hope, you know, um, there is some sort of reintegration into the networks that are existing on this planet that we used to be part of that we've so um, elegantly uh, detached ourselves from. Um, I'm also very committed to seeding my work with um, a tremendous amount of ambivalence as to whether or not there is um, another, another future on the other side of, again, uh, my work's not interested in apocalypse. I don't, a, a, a specific event doesn't happen in any of my work. It's for me, slow ecological decline. Um, but, but I always seed what I consider to be the sort of multiple possibilities with, with an air of ambivalence because I, um, I'm very aware that a sort of quote unquote positive ending for our planet may very well involve the complete destruction of our species. Um, so hope is a very kind of uh, tenuous term because I have hope as a human being, but I also have a different kind of hope, which is 
that if it's the requirement of, of, of the sort of grand network of this planet that we um, are diminished or are done away, that, that that's not a hope that I, I don't want to diminish sort of the, the, the perspective from, from that angle. Um, in terms of the work that I'm doing now, I think after spending a great deal of time at the beginning of pandemic, really raging against the idea that I should um, be expected to continue to work both in a studio capacity, but also as I'm sure you've all experienced, um, the way that the labor space um, just fully uh, invaded our homes via Zoom um, just felt so inhumane um, to the conditions that we're all experiencing. So I really kind of put a put a stop to everything that was under the banner of productivity. And I think that was really important for me to um, be with this moment, whether it's the pandemic or global uprisings or the elections here and in Puerto Rico. Um, and uh, what ended up happening from sort of being is that I rolled all of those events in a way or another into a work that I was already um, developing, which is uh, titled Guillotina Wanna Cry, um, which is a performance and video work where I am actively kind of pondering what the conditions are that are required to nurture and birth revolution. Um, again, it's always presented as a question. I am not saying that I have a vision for that, but I do feel like if it's to happen, it requires a sort of pluralism of experiences and um, radical imaginations. So um, I've been sort of really sitting with what my role is as producer of these works, um, where I don't want to be the director, but I still have to kind of create a container for the other performers to feel safe in um, and bring their sort of embodied vision of, of radical change to it. Um, while also, again, really fostering a space where the growth and the seeding of revolution is horizontal. Oh, that's so refreshing to hear from both of you guys um, about your practice and your thoughts of this time, which is such a, um, a huge moment that we're living through. And um, Sophia, it really resonates with me what you were saying about a hope that um, looks really directly at the level of crisis that we're within and that um you, you know i i show up every day uh, hoping to um do my best to to make this world recognizing that that there are so many people who are already experiencing climate collapse on so many levels and um, many people are on the front lines including ourselves here with the with the fires um, and I would say also the the pandemic is, is part of that so I you know I don't I don't wish that upon anyone but I I do share with you this this feeling that while I'll do work in my lifetime um, to stay the collapse and keep it away um, and keep people safe I I also, look, my hope goes much more deeply into that. Um, I think there's that idea that m maybe what quote unquote nature um, wanted when it, it made humans was plastic. And um, that, 
you know, the next evolutionary leap will come out of what can eat that. So it's maybe out of the destruction. And by that destruction, I mean, you know, the destruction of our own species, you know, that, that, that life continues and, um, and proliferates. And I think that it's still an open book, how, how, how that's going to happen. And, um, you know, thinking about that, that you mentioned the slow ecological decline. And I think about that a lot too. And I, I really time scale that, um, like telescoping in and out of time because it is so slow and yet geologically it's in the blink of an eye that it's occurring. But for us human beings, it's, it's just slow process that we're living through, even as we see it greatly accelerate, you know, which is part of our time. And, um, it is interesting to be invited um, into something about hope and futurism. And that's happened to me many times in my practice. Um, I have a, a very long-standing tenure project where I write um, love letters to extinct species, where I tell them everything that's happened since they left me, like the internet and how I can find them there or uh, rock and roll or the stock market. And it's really a retelling of human history. But I, I, al I never think of it as being hopeful, but yet it's been curated into shows about, um, about optimism. I was having a conversation earlier today in a workshop that I was teaching about um, the possibilities and the regeneration that can come out of destruction and decay and moments like the one we're living in. And one of the things we were talking about that that has come up many times is this idea of hope as an active engagement and not something that we rely on, but actually something that's difficult and that is about looking at the difficult things. Um, one of my practices, um, the Bureau of Linguistical Reality, we, we work to um, work with the public to identify all the feelings and experiences that we're having as the climates, as climate chaos progresses, um, and all the feelings and experiences we don't have words for yet, and then work with the public to name those things. And, you know, one word that we have that we've um, worked with a woman on creating is, is hopescaping. And so it's this idea of hope as an active engagement. And that's not that's really looking at and digging deep into kind of the dark territory of the work that needs to be done, the recognition of the damage that's occurred, and sitting with the grief of this moment, which I think we truly are, as a society, do not sit with the grief that we are collectively experiencing living through climate crisis. Um, and mass extinction. And a lot of my work has to do with um, creating spaces for sitting with that grief. And it's actually, interestingly enough, during this pandemic, which um, though in many ways I've been very lucky, I, my um, you know tragedy has touched my life um, intimately. And yet I feel like this pandemic has created a space and a portal to look at that and it's just, um, it, it's actually a moment that I feel more like the regenerative forces and the, the mycelium of, you know, turning and recreating have, have a, a possibility of, of um, working their magic, even as we've seen it uncovering the 
gross um, inequalities that are existent always in our, our, our world. Continuing on some of these threads that you each touched on, um, as erratics, as a collective, we think about geologic forces um, as both destructive and potentially creative. They destroy, but they also leave something new. And I'm curious how each of you might relate to your present or the past to think about um, things that you might either destroy or something that you might create in its path, um, how you might take things apart and put them back together to reimagine new futures, and potentially how those practices um, might relate to the way that artists can approach some of these larger systems in our world. I've been thinking about geologic time for quite some time in my work and um, thinking about kind of the love affair of um, continents, you know, moving together and moving apart. And there was a period of time in my life when I, uh, when I was at one of my lowest points of depression in looking at the climate crisis and how we were just going to go full steam off that cliff. And around that time, the only thing that could kind of bring me any kind of solace was reading or watching documentaries about, um, about other planets in space and the vastness of space and the hugeness of that. And it gave me to think about our situation as being so small within that vastness gave me some level of calm. And yet, of course, the more you, you learn about the smallness of our experience and of Earth, I mean, the, the, the multitude of the, the universe, the more you learn how incredibly, um, incredibly special and unique the situations that we have on Earth are and how um, unique that is. So, so as I've mentioned, I have a longstanding practice of, um, you know, writing these letters that are kind of using the, using the distance of writing, explaining the absolute insanity of our time in this moment and using the distance of other species to do that, but also using the intimacy of addressing them as lover with that level of intimacy. And, um, you know, a lot of those are about a longing for, in, and I, I say I say extinct species, but I, I use that very broadly and they're very strange and, and weird and otherworldly. And I've written them to COVID and um, smallpox and Neanderthal and the LUCA, which is the last universal common ancestor, the, the organism from which we know that all life on earth is derived. Uh, and a lot of that is about a longing for, you know, a time before evolution when we had togetherness and unpacking that, um, thinking about how we are all connected and how, but we have divided ourselves and that has created the incredible 
diversity, which we've inherited, but it's also created these separations between ourselves. It's a hard place in a way for me to pick up. And God, I don't mean to answer every question with like, well, really, this question is totally inverted for the way that I think about things. But I am always very hesitant um, as someone who is incredibly devoted to the notion that some form of destruction is in our future, whether it's the destruction that we collectively decide needs to happen um, to large-scale oppressive systems or whether it's the destruction that will be visited upon us because of our, you know, um, our hand and what we've, what we've done on this planet. I, I think that that some sort of dismantling is not only necessary, but it's just inevitable. And yet I'm someone who, or maybe I should say rather that I, I, I'm always hesitant to, um, live in the past too much, even if there is a great deal, um, for us to learn there only in the sense that I find that in a lot of conversations, um, about kind of mo modalities forward, um, there is just like a great romanticization of the way things were. And I just, to say it really like plainly, I just feel like I can't, I can't romanticize uh, an epoch or a time space that I myself didn't occupy. I think that there is, you know, a very valid conversation to be had about sort of ancestral um, belonging to to many modes of time. But I, um, I yeah, I I feel like I'm I'm more invested in kind of the big open void ahead than than in getting too tangled up um, with with paths that could have been only because I find that I I don't know I'm too seduced by it in a way um, it's almost as a it's it, I'm almost closing down the channels for myself because I I I worry that I'll get too enamored with something and and stop doing the work that I think is needed for for whatever it is that it is that I want to come. And I'm going to stop there because I feel like I'm rambling myself in circles. And this is the problem with working science fictionally after a while, all of time actually starts to kind of exist as one in your own mind, some sort of Philip K. Dick Vallis moment. No, that was great. Um, Nicholas, do you have anything you'd like to share here? Yeah. Thinking about the concept of uh, geologic time and its uh, cycles of destruction and creation um, reminds me kind of of the ambivalence that Sophia was talking about because like creation and destruction are points of perspective in the like you know it's good for the flies bad for the spider or vice versa idea um, like you know in nature documentaries we're usually put into the perspective of either the eater or the eaten and so then you're sort of like cheering if the gazelle gets away from the lion sort of thing. But, you know, if we just sort of flip the perspective, then the gazelle getting away would be like a sad story for the lion because it just expended all that energy. So that makes me think of like sort of the ambivalence of balance because the, you know, the pithy statement of good for the fly, bad for the spider 
ignores that spiders eating flies helps maintain the population balance of the flies. And so, yeah, I guess thinking of that sort of ambivalent balance is more of what I'm interested in, which is, um, I guess, why I, I look into history so much, um, especially of my own people, uh, because so much of the history I was taught tend to focus on the things that frame the present as the best possible outcome or even like sort of the inevitable one or the divinely inspired one. And so I like to look through in order to find that uh, bigger picture as well as to create a more balanced understanding of how I got here so that each moment of my life is steeped in that better understanding because um, sort of the way I grew up, I, I, I rebelled against uh, some of my upbringing by sort of leaning on intuition um, and going out to, you know, the spaces got named nature, the margins of the cities in order to have these experiences that to me were like unmediated. They were like a direct mountain to body experience. Um, but then as I, you know, do this sort of, you know, taking apart and putting together, start to realize that, you know, the, the romanticism of Emerson is, you know, deeply influential in my intuitive uh, thought processes. So, yeah, more or less as a way of creating a balance so that I can keep my intuitions that are based in white supremacy and settler colonial logics um, to start to recognize that they're there, whether unintended or not, and um, work from there. Because uh, to find that, yeah, to find that balance again, which is, you know, what I see is like the climate crises is a form of finding balance again. And so also thinking about like your part of your question was like about taking apart and putting together, which is something I think about in the way that um, the sciences that we use here, they, you know, we, I guess, I guess the, the invent, you know, the, the logic of ecology confronts that logic of taking things apart in order to understand them and sort of says, like, you know, the spider and the fly, that you can't really focus in on that part to understand it. You have to see it over that uh, vast sense of time in order to really see what is happening. Some of the work that I've been doing in the last year or so has, um, and I, I kind of alluded into this when you were asking about where we were recording from. Um, so some of my work has been kind of literally do, doing that, um, where I've been taking materials from my home, um, my little 700 square foot apartment, um, as we've done renovations and thinking about the homes that were destroyed in the building of my home and the whole um, gold rush era that occurred and um, you know the the vast redwood forests that were cleared for that you know that that burnt down mainly in 1906 you know we cleared these vast forest forests built homes and then those homes but burned down 
you know, um, just a few years later, uh, which I think says a lot. And so anyhow, I've been taking a lot of those materials and trying the impossible task of putting things back together and making amends and using those as metaphors. Um, I have one piece where I took two Douglas fir studs and then I took um, some inherited gold jewelry, um, which I melted down and um, the, the, I'm sure you guys are familiar with the, the Japanese um, tradition of kintsuki, uh, which is a way of mending pottery with gold, kind of highlighting the, um, the, the stress and the strain and the trauma that it's been through so that after it's broken, it becomes more valuable um, and it, that its value isn't degraded. And so kind of grafting these beams together with the gold that I inherited that's a reference to the gold rush here in California, but also um, what it is to inherit something like that and what that talks about with inheritance as we talk about reparations um, directly and repairs at large and, and those challenges. Um, I want to quickly uh, jump in with uh, <laughs> an amendment to say that like most artists, I am contradictory in um, my thinking and my making. And yes, I stand by <laughs> my, this sort of previous statement around uh, taking apart and rebuilding as uh, an act to come, um, but that in keeping with my own sort of cross currents and, and again, rage against the idea of any sort of linearity. Um, I was being a bit flippant before just thinking about the past because for me, it's less that I want to get stuck in it and more that it's with us always. And um, in thinking about the newer work that I described earlier, you know, the performance, part of the, part of the sort of resolve that I had during this period of waiting and, and sort of being was that it felt really important that the performers in this piece, which are themselves kind of negotiating their sort of US American position as individuals and moving away from that notion into a space of collectivity, that part of the ways I had to sort of resolve that journey materially was literally consulting with past revolution. And so the work has sort of a kind of multivocal kind of presence of past revolutions in the sense that there's video and audio um, ranging from the Black Panthers to um, a speech by Lenin to the workers to International Women's Day March in, in that sparked the Russian Revolution, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I really just wanted to, you know, A, kind of amend my statement, but also really maybe and maybe shift the conversation in a sense too to this idea of time not ex oh god I'm being like this pothead time's not linear but you know really embrace this idea that time is sort of ever present with itself and that this idea of linearity also does great damage to what I consider uh, being kind of temporal spaces and temporal kind of circular time time that um, ancestrally has been queer time or women's time or indigenous time and it's a it, it's not compliant with kind of capitalist progress minded forward moving time 
And so in there lay my sort of resistance to think of the past as this sort of monolith when in fact there's many forgotten pasts. And the past is still here. Yes. Something that seems to be um, everyone sort of circling around, and I'd like to um, dive into this a little bit more with each of you. Um, and Nicholas, thank you for also your your thoughts. I thought that was really lovely the way you talked about um, maybe not looking at the idea of kind of creation and destruction as this kind of categorical binary, but everything is kind of relative, and I feel like that kind of um, relates to to what Sophia was just saying about um, just sort of dispelling this idea of kind of linearity in terms of time and future and past. And I'm curious to um, like how each of you might think about sort of um, holding like maybe queering this binary between utopia and dystopia as just these two options um, and potentially like how might we all or how each of you might individually kind of hold a multiplicity of futures and how that sort of ambivalence might play into that process for you. This reminds me of um, of a, something Anne Braden said, a, a white anti-racist activist. She was talking about, so this was the stage when she was going to buy a house for someone else because that for another family because that family was um, our black people and they weren't allowed to buy the house in this neighborhood at that time so she bought it and then sold it to him and she was having this internal conflict where she was like I have to lie to be able to do this which is against my ethics but it's for my ethics to do the thing I have to lie to do and so recognizing that white supremacy culture makes her unable to be ethical because she either is like sort of swept away with it by playing its games of politeness and nicety or she confronts it by being unethical in other ways in order to yeah break from it um which again reminds me yeah of that that ambivalence of uh dystopia and utopia and i guess that's to come to that i personally and this is like a new new place for me so this isn't like anything i've well studied at all but it has me thinking about yeah the the utopias and dystopias are kind of again yeah these false binaries of extremes in order for us to like categorically understand things but that i guess that messy space and what it means to be ethical in a world that abuses ethics um, in order to have domination. Um, and I think 
where that kind of shows up or has shown up in my work is, so this was before the pandemic, but I was thinking about um, connecting the theories of manifest destiny to the flood of Noah, um, which in both cases, um, at least from the Christian perspective, these were both situations where God was quote unquote cleansing the land in order to make space for his chosen people. And so thinking about uh, that, that form of genocide as cleansing and then connecting it to the antibacterial uh, sprays and bleaches and uh, lotions that you know have started to become ubiquitous in our lives early on in the pandemic and the way so many of the products that we use that claim to whiten or purify also claim to kill 99.9%. And which, you know, yeah, like, yeah, antib antibiotics are, are, do a lot of helpful things. It just makes me sort of reflect on the other options we have, because we often sit into like, oh, does that mean that you don't want any, any antibiotics, Nick? And I'm like, well, couldn't we have like spent a little bit more time and figured out a way of like targeting things so that we don't have to like completely destroy our biome in order to get rid of the few that uh, don't help our physical health? Um, so I guess it's kind of comes, yeah, I come into that perspective of, of more of utopias and dystopias. Like it's, yeah, I, I hear from you, Sophia, a bit that that's not really a goal and almost almost feels like it's kind of not something helpful for our conversations, which not in this case, like we're talking around the ideas, but this sort of goal of what do we go for, I guess, yeah, that it just comes back to like, just things are messy. Like life, life is incredibly messy, um, especially the more you uh, come into a, a, a present or a specificity. I have a lot of thoughts around this, but I want to kind of start from um, where you just left off with the opening premise of utopia is itself seated in very specific white patriarchal European notions of enlightenment. Um, so it, it, to me, it's like we don't even have to spend that much time there because it, it, all the bias in the world, all the bias that we've carried over into this century is in there. Uh, moreover, I am invested in um, a future that is by definition uh, messy and plural and um, like I said earlier, includes many timelines that, you know, some maybe have great longevity and some maybe are short. And for me, that's fundamental, not just in this sort of philosophical kind of hopeful space that I, that I am invested in these ideas, but also in the sense that Going back to the conversation of climate, right, I think, and I think that we've all kind of touched on this a little bit in our description of our work and in our thinking, but in the conversation of climate, I think one of the fundamental kind of challenges that we're faced with as a species is that we can no longer see ourselves as networked to all the other life on this planet, whereas that is kind of like a foundational premise for any mode of survival that is left to us that includes us making it. Um, and if we look then at life on this planet, it is a, 
an infinity of systems that are elegant and beautiful and cooperative, but they're always adapting. Um, they're always, and I don't even mean just evolutionarily, I just mean day to day, right? Like uh, a dry year has repercussions and there are reactions and out thinking outside of a kind of climate crisis, um, these systems still have a great deal of negotiation to do on a day to day basis with what comes up with what is what is sort of climactically happening. And so if there, first, there isn't a single utopia, I, I resist even using the word, but if there is this sort of kind of goal, again, again, I, I, I'm using very clumsy um, language or clumsy human language, but if there is this thing that we're working towards, for me, it has to, by design, have um, many, many openings. Um, it, it can start as something that feels recognizable and has a shape, um, but it won't survive if there's an adherence to that shape. Because if there's anything then that we learn from any time um, humans have struggled against themselves in a, in a search for radical change, is that if that change isn't adaptive and if that change isn't um, responsive and responsible, to the people, even the people within its particular movements, it tends to stagnate and it tends to um, lose part of its humanity in service of upholding a monolithic ideology. And then we're back to where we started because that's the thing that we're raging against in the first place. Um, so yes, this idea of dystopia and utopia is I think fundamentally problematic and something that I've raged against in my own work, just sort of as a practical consideration. I will also kind of end this by saying that I also don't think we're service, and this goes back um, to Nick talking about kind of the, how do we approach balance, right? So looking at dystopia, why, you know, dystopia obviously, right, always has these negative connotations, but it depends on whose perspective we're using. And if, you know, something that I used a lot early days in my work was this idea of mutation as an evolutionary process, right? Where if we all have to adapt, um, if our bodies start to adapt physically to a shifting environment, then we are prohibited then from organizing ourselves in the kind of violent tradition of race and gender. Um, Meanwhile, though, we look at mutation as abhorrent, right? So I think that imbuing dystopia on the other end as this kind of hell on earth isn't helpful to anyone. And it also closes down a myriad of possibilities in terms of what we're imagining. And at the end of the day, what I'm invested in with the work and in my thinking is not necessarily let's make a plan, but that we need to individually and then collectively let ourselves imagine things that are completely beyond anything that we have experienced, because I think that that is the only way. I just want to add, um, coming off of your point of mutation, um, this concept that I read in a book called Vicious Men and Wolves in America. I think is the subtitle. Anyway, um, I really loved it because it was talking about uh, the way the Mormons migrated into the Great Basin 
and it was talking about the evolution of wolves and basically mutation as adaptation and that in order to survive we must change like constantly we have to be mutating and adapting um and so then he points out this paradox with the mormon migration that in order to stay the same they had to completely change where they were to hold on to this like stasis which i i associate with those sort of monolithic things that we rage against um but yeah, I just, I loved that concept that in order to survive, you essentially must go extinct in some form, you know, in some perspective of that creation and destruction. Uh, we've, we've had to change so much in order to survive and how those are, yeah, as an anti-purist and anti-stasis thing that mutation is essential for survival. I think it's super interesting that we're having this conversation right now, because um, I think probably all of us think about this a lot in our own practice and our own thinking, but especially during the pandemic. Um, and as we're, we're seeing things because there's such a proliferation, you know, of this virus and it's, um, it's, it's so many different communities of it exist throughout the world and how we're watching that. It's just um, interesting background for that and how it's surviving, even though we're, we're, we've created these like incredibly effective vaccines, you know, the, 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 the virus is still finding its own way to adapt. Um, and, you know, evolution is always through mutation. Uh, that's, that's, you know, how, how it progresses. Um, and just getting back to this conversation on um, the, the, the original question on utopic versus dystopic, I mean, I think that it's so bonkers that we're ha even having that conversation because it just points to this like gap in our language that we don't even have a word to talk about, like a positive, progressive, sustainable future where things get better for, you know, the bulk of things. Not that I'm saying that there's one clear direction because I absolutely agree with what Nick brought up about, you know, that it's these things are all dependent on the perspective. But within that, you know, outside of that, there is, you know, greater systems at play that are either life giving or not. Um, and, you know, while our way of living has been um, great for our species and for bovine species, you know, cows are doing great quote unquote, evolutionarily, even though their lives are miserable, they're quite successful. So all of these, you know, species that we um, have specifically bred, uh, but this idea that like, we can imagine, we've all these words for apocalypse, for the end of days, for Armageddon. Um, and then that only word that we have to talk about positivity is utopia, which literally means no place. And immediately you bring that up and there's all these conversations about dystopia. And so we just don't have the, the language for a pluralistic future that is decentralized and that is, is, is good for life and life-giving conditions. And I think, and this goes to, speaks to what I think Sophia was talking about, like, I think that is one of our projects, you know, as, as much as, you know, maybe our work isn't trying to romanticize this, we do have to 
create spaces of imagination that envision what is possible out there. And I think, um, uh, you know, I never want to say like, that's the role of artists or something like that, because I don't think there is one. But, you know, that's one of the projects of our time is, is to imagine that future um, and just to start talking about it because it's not, and it's really easy to have just kind of apocalyptic thinking. And I think it's actually a really interesting time for that with the pandemic. In the pandemic, I think it's shown us, like, as we've seen everybody slow down, well, go back to 2019. Like, when you ask somebody how they were doing, what was the first answer they gave? They were like, oh, I'm busy, I'm busy. Like, everybody was feeling so busy. Even those who were in this project of decolonization and in the project of, um, quote unquote, saving the planet, which is hugely objectifying that, you know, that term. But they would go about the project of doing that with the same kind of caffeinated capitalist go, go, go mentality that has got us into this problem. And I think that the sort of forced slowing down is, um, or even like what Sophia was saying of, of, you know, rallying against this, like being forced to continue to be productive amid what we're living through. Um, I think I, I, I see a lot of possibility that with that. And I think, you know, I always talk about how what the planet wants is what we want. And what we want is what the planet wants. And we just need to stop fighting ourselves. And it's not that we have to save it. It's that we have to like go to bed earlier and work less and do less. On that note of like saving the planet, I really like to sort of in mending um, that human nature binary is, uh, I can't remember who said it or told it to me, but the basically the sense of we are the planet working to protect itself, or some of us are. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you that this whole idea of nature as being something that we need to save or that's over there um, is, is part of the problem. So we don't have a ton of time left, but I'd like to just ask um, one last question of you. Um, earlier today, we, when we recorded our episode about mutation, kin, and hybrid bodies, um, we did talk a lot about mutation and sort of the way that humans um, live in relationship to other kin and um, other species and bodies on our planet. And one of our, the artists, um, Jabao Lee, was discussing this idea of um, sort of what happens when we potentially do go extinct as human beings. And she said such a beautiful thing, which was that um, perhaps art is a tool to create an elegant extinction, to leave some, some sort of record as we are potentially going down this road. Um, and in my mind, perhaps that is a kind of hope in itself, that practice. Um, but I'm just curious if we think about ourselves as artists, as perhaps storytellers to explore, imagine, expand upon this multiplicity of futures. Um, what legacy do you hope might carry through 
um, from our efforts and what values would you like to see as part of that multiplicity, even if it doesn't necessarily include human beings as part of it? This immediately made me think of ceramics, um, which is one of the other major mediums I use. Uh, I worked for June Kaneko, who makes like you know, up to 11 foot tall ceramic freestanding sculptures. And he's talked about before how he does, he intends them to be something for the future to basically confuse some sort of future species or aliens or something. Um, but it makes me think of projects I've seen certain artists do where they mold um, or they sculpt endangered and extinct species in clay in order to sort of keep that memory of that being alive. Um, and so I guess the thing that I would hope that we're leaving behind that maybe I'm not actively participating in is that memory of our biodiversity, of the, of the plurality of life that uh, you know, was, was able to come to be in this amount of space where we had the conditions for the kinds of life we have right now. Um, and so I hope that there's some way that uh, we can leave behind an understanding of that multiplicity and that abundance and, yeah, I guess that proliferation and joy. I'm sitting here thinking through this because part of me worries that I didn't fully understand the question, but part of me is thinking that I'm doing the thing again where I'm being like, like the infant Tareeb of this podcast. Um, but no, please I, do. <laughs> for me, if I'm understanding your question correctly, it immediately begs the question of like, who's beholding, like who is presencing and so um just to clarify like maybe the presence that's beholding is just the planet itself um, okay as an entity not necessarily like an alien she's like being. checking herself out yeah or like you know <laughs> like just the organic matter on the earth or maybe geologic future that hasn't humans with no place there like maybe there's no humans involved in this at all maybe there's no, i'm not saying like what are what are the aliens gonna find but yeah perhaps what is what is that future um or what are some values or concepts in that future um or in that multiplicity of potential futures yeah i mean again it's still it's hard because i'm approaching this from my very human centric position and something that I try to do, even though I'm, I, I'm constantly failing at it, it's definitely failing at it now, but in the past with my work is to deprioritize the anthropocentric position. Um, so I guess I answer that with that sort of huge asterisk, um, that I am, I myself, I'm questioning the way I'm answering this because it's coming from my perspective. Um, but I, feel like there's uh, I'm picking at random here from a <laughs> a bag of wood bees but I think there's a future in which some uh, part of our species remains um even if it's um and I don't mean that in like a material sense I mean like quite literally some of us make it um 
because I, I was thinking of something that Alicia said before, and I was thinking about the fires last year and something that a friend said was, you know, don't be sort of romanticized by apocalypse, right? Like, as we know, apocalypse has happened. It will happen. It's a very kind of, again, Christian construct of a final end. And it pre prevents us from seeing so much more. Um, but I, I do feel like in thinking that then, and maybe this really does contradict what I was saying earlier about the past, in thinking then to a, a sort of future where where there is this sort of beauty and joy and interconnectedness, right? Something else that's come up a lot is that we've created this false division between the wilderness or nature and us, where there is a, a cohabitation that includes real tender care for life on this planet and that that will result in a tender care right back at um, our own species. And then there's the future where we're just not there. And um, to be obtuse, I guess I can't really describe that future um, because I'm, again, trying to deliberately trying to foil this um, anthropocentric perspective. But I would say that in that future, it doesn't really matter what's left in terms of objects or materials or, you know, there's there's so much beauty in like the legacy of the various cultures that have um, you know, produce something that remains in, in sort of the history of, of humans on the planet um, that like I'm personally enamored by, but which I'm totally fine <laughs> with throwing into the into the furnace of of this rebirth, as it were. Um, so there you have a very non answer answer. I thought that was a great answer answer. Yeah, yeah, I agree, Sophia. Um, I I just want to follow up and and say, I love what you were saying about, you know, uh, like maybe our planet does love us, you know, like maybe we're not this horror on it, and then I feel like we do have to hold that. Um, we have to hold that in our minds, like we don't know the answer, like we like for us to even think that we're the problem is also like this anthropomorphism, you know, it's it's still like us thinking that we understand what's happening. And the fact that it has, the planet has allowed us to proliferate as much as we have um, stands stands on its own ground and is, is the ground that we're standing on. You know, this is the reality that we live in. Um, so I'll hold that aside. But to answer the question kind of directly, um, it's a little hard for me because I have never as an artist been really interested in my material um, legacy. It's never been important to me that work was archival. I think that our landscape, lands our landfills will do that quite elegantly or unelegantly for us. You know, our, like all of human history will be so preserved and so contained in that. And I think that's super fascinating that it is actually the things that we don't want to look at and that we throw away wherever that mythical away place is, those are the things that will be remembered by. And also, you know, the, the impact that we've had on the nitrogen cycle and the, um, 
CO2 levels, the plasticocene, you know, like these are all of the, you know, although I much prefer terms like capitalocene than anthropocene, like these are fundamentally the ideas behind the anthropocene is that like we are leaving a geologic um, layer of ourselves where um, we're, we're the dominant or, or one of the dominant geologic forces, you know, at play, even if that is a wildfire. Um, it's a wildfire that we have, you know, a, a hand in creating. And I believe that life, you know, will find a way to deal with those things, or it won't. I mean, I, there, there's always this, this space of it won't because Venus was once Earth-like, they think, you know, like there is the possibility that it could just go grossly wrong. But I do believe in the hope of life in reclaiming the spaces that we've made. And, you know, I'm kind of half joking when I say that, you know, the, the thing I said earlier about nature wanting to make us to make plastic or, or concrete or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, but, but it is, you know, that is how life has happened. Like there have been these um, extinction events and then, you know, difficult times. And then there have been explosions, you know, and if the dinosaurs hadn't gone extinct, you know, mammalian life would have never taken hold. So it is, it is catastrophe that is opportunity. Um, and that is in no way glorifying, you know, the idea of apocalypse or anything like that, because I, I completely agree with Sophia that I do hope that there is some form of humanity in this future. I just want to tack on like a footnote. Um, as we're having this conversation, we've used the word we a lot in referring to those responsible for environmental devastation and just want to acknowledge uh, that not all humans on the planet are equally implicated in that we as 80% uh, of the planet's remaining biodiversity is held on lands managed by indigenous peoples. Thank you for that, Nicholas, because I was actually, as I was saying that term Anthropocene, and, you know, referencing those, I was actually in my own mind having a, a little fight in my head about that, because I think it, it absolutely can't be understated enough that, you know, this is, it is Northern Western capitalist societies that are doing this. And I completely agree with you. Okay, well, I don't want to take any more of your time tonight. Um, but I just wanted to say thank you each so, so much um, for your thoughts and ideas in this conversation. I am just so appreciative of your time and your energy and your thoughts um, and just so excited about this conversation. And I'm, I'm really hopeful. I mean, I'm really hopeful. There's that term again, but just that, um, that this conversation can be sort of a starting point, um, not necessarily like a one-time thing, but um, you know, I hope to stay in touch and I hope um, that maybe this conversation can be continued um, in different platforms or different ways in the future together. So thank you again so much for being part of this. For more information about the Anchorage Museum, visit anchoragemuseum.org. This podcast was produced by me.
Cody Liska for the Anchorage Museum. This mini-series was curated and written by Erratics, a project by Nina Elder, Hannah Perrine Mode, and Tyler Ray. You can visit their work at erraticsproject.com. Music was produced by Keezy Baby. <laughs>